This week's episode of the Restaurant Strategy Podcast is an interview. In fact, it's the first of four interviews in a row I'm going to be launching. Uh, 2021, in fact, is going to be filled with a lot more uh, interviews than we've had in the past. I'm challenging myself to bring you guys uh, guests who I think can really teach you something, can teach all of us something. I think you're really going to get a lot out of all of these interviews coming up. Today, I'm sitting and chatting with Christopher Tunna. He is a very good friend of mine, a longtime colleague. We've known each other for 13 years. We've worked on five, six different projects together. Uh, I wanted to talk to him all about opening restaurants because he's made a name for himself uh, doing that, opening properties. And I think he's got a lot of wisdom and insight to share. Stick around. There's an old saying goes something like this. You'll only find three kinds of people in the world. Those who see, those who will never see, and those who can see when shown. This is Restaurant Strategy, a marketing podcast for anyone who's looking. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in. My name is Chip Close and this is Restaurant Strategy, a marketing podcast dedicated entirely to the restaurant industry. So each week we discuss the tools, tactics, and strategies that will establish you as a leader in your market. I want to help you do more covers and drive more revenue. If you've been with us for a while, you know that uh, I usually go back and forth from week to week. Mostly, I do a monologue-style format where I choose a, a specific topic, then I pick that topic apart. Uh, but then every so often, uh, I'm able to bring on a guest for a longer interview. Today is another one of those episodes, and I can't wait to dig in. Uh, I want to introduce you to a guy, a good friend of mine named Christopher Tunna. But first, a quick word from our sponsor. So this week's episode is sponsored by the Craver app. You may remember back on episode number 89, I was joined by the company's founder and CEO, a guy named Amin Yazdani. We had a great conversation about how technology and specifically about how his software is helping uh, restaurants and restaurant owners. So Craver is the ultimate solution for mobile ordering, loyalty, and payment for restaurants. Using Craver, you're gonna get your own branded app that isn't just some cookie cutter software. It will be an extension of your brand in your customer's pockets. You're gonna be able to own your customer data, own the process by which they engage with you, and then have direct access to their orders commission-free. Your customers get the convenience of mobile ordering and you get to engage with them directly using push notifications, custom coupons, and promo codes. You can use Craver's loyalty and reward system to build stronger relationships with your guests. These are all ways, proven ways, to increase the frequency of visits and to grow check averages. The app integrates beautifully with delivery services like Postmates and DoorDash with a flat fee per delivery, right? So you can stop paying those crazy commissions that many of the third-party sites are charging. Plus, Craver integrates on the back end with many POS systems and payment providers. To learn more about Craver and how they can help provide you and your customers with a beautiful branded app, visit their website, www.craverapp.com. Don't worry, that link is also in the show notes. Most of the time I do a monologue style format, but then every so often I do an interview. So today I'm joined by my good friend and colleague, Christopher Tunna. Uh, he's been in the industry for more than two decades and has made a name for himself really as the guy who opens restaurants. Uh, over the course of his career, he's worked at Gramercy Tavern and Kraft and Limpero and uh, Brooklyn Botanic Gardens. He helped kind of launch their culinary program down there. And he's opened 
uh, Bedford Post up in Westchester, Avoce Columbus with Chef Missy Robbins, uh, Lilia uh, also with uh, Chef Robbins, Pawala and Shuka. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Jeb. I thought it would be a good conversation because you have opened so many restaurants. You uh, have gotten good at opening restaurants, as awful as it is uh, <laughs> to open a restaurant. Um, but we're in this pandemic and kind of everybody says, you know, there are all these restaurants that are going to close, which means there's all going to be all these spaces that have become available. And so I talk to a lot of people who I feel are like on the sidelines, eager to get in, to, to open their first restaurant, to own their first restaurant. Uh, and after this pandemic is over, they're going to jump in and they're going to own their first restaurant. And as someone who's opened a ton of restaurants, I figure there's some advice you can share. And so that's what I'm hoping this episode can be, this conversation can be. So I want to talk about the process of opening. Uh, but to start, I want to talk about what, what's the one thing, what's the number one thing that people have to know going into opening their own restaurant? In terms of financially or mentally preparedness, what in which kind of, you know, department are we talking? Yeah, let's get our head on straight. Let's talk mentally. Let's get let's talk about mindset first. Okay. I mean, I think that's a good place to start. The you know, in my experience and having worked with people who were not in the industry who had that kind of the not to call it cliche, but that dream, you know, they're coming from finance or they're coming from law or they're coming from something else and they've always dreamed of opening their own restaurant and it's a very very romantic um kind of you know drive for them um i think there's a commonality in the mistake that they make it's that they think that all of the work is the permits and picking out the furniture and getting the restaurant space and decorating it and they don't realize that the hard work actually starts when you open the doors um and they look at it as a, like a sprint to opening where like that's just basically like icing the cake and you've now got to run that beast every day in perpetuity like that's the hard part it's not getting the right pictures so there's a, this assumption that like as long as we get to that finish line meaning opening that's the finish line to them and then it'll just take care of itself and it'll it'll Absolutely. run Absolutely. and they don't realize the amount of effort and you know, just energy that it's going to consume. And they also think that it's like any other business where you can, you can walk away when you need to like recharge, you know, oh, I'll take off the weekend or I'll go away for two weeks because that was what they did corporate. And, you know, I'll still take off December's like, <laughs> it's just, it doesn't work that way. You know, and I try the meetings that I've had when I was a consultant and I've tried to explain that to to people is, you know, it's it's almost akin. You should look at your restaurant like you're not opening a, a business, but you've just created a baby and you can step away from your restaurant as long as you can step away from an infant. Yeah. Yeah. It's about it. You know, so they give you like 10 minutes. <laughs> I love it. Uh, I love the analogy. Uh, you'll learn, I'm sure, over the course of this conversation that uh, Chris is a king of analogies. Uh, I'm hoping that's the first of many. Um, so then how do you, then Then what's the process? Like, How do you educate uh, people that are coming in from the outside or, you know, when you're coming in to open these places? How does that process go or how has it gone? Well, my first, um, my first recommendation is don't do it. <laughs> That's always where I start, you know, and I remember one specific where I was 
helping a friend of a friend who had left a corporate law practice and but hadn't left it fully and when he asked me what he should do um and he was thinking about leaving you know his practice and just coming full-time into this restaurant that he was an owner um you know that was my first response i said don't do it i said cut your losses and go um i think everyone should be dissuaded because it's not like any other business even if you want to do it some people are just not um emotionally and personality compatible with the industry you know and i've seen people who it has nothing to do with aptitude i've seen plenty of smart and uh, capable people who just it it destroys them you know chews them up so you know i like to dissuade people first and if they're still pervasive and still want to you know pursue it then it's like okay well then now we should talk about you know how do you survive this because yeah. it's it, in the beginning it's more about survival it's not about success <laughs> you know and i think that's one of the the other like if you come into it with the right mental attitude that helps you kind of formulate your financial decisions it helps you formulate your business decisions and also prepares you for hardship um in a better way than like trying to measure your success you know it's better to to just gauge your survival yeah it's it's really interesting because i always joke around with uh, you know we've been in the industry for a long time the two of us uh we've managed a bunch of restaurants we, we've worked in restaurants and we've consulted you know where you kind of come in as a hired gun so there's a certain objectivity um that you bring to the table and um and I've had conversations like you've had where people want to open a restaurant and they ask me, you know, this, that, and the other thing. And, and I've sat across the table from them and said, you know, my job over the next 45 minutes is to try to talk you out of this yeah, thing. Yeah, please don't do this. <laughs> please don't do this. Like, I like you. Why would you do that? <laughs> I do it because I have to. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to do this. But you get to the end of it, and if they, if they really want to do it, okay, then at least they've been properly prepared or, or as much as you can. So then... If that's the mindset piece of it, right? Just understanding that it's a baby. It's not a. It's not a sprint. It's not getting this thing to the finish line. Um, it's raising a child, and the child will never be able to be left for more than a couple of minutes. Then where do you go from there? Then you know. Then talk about the flip side. You know the the financial decisions. The you know the business decisions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think financially, the the most important thing is to to is to limit your bleeding. You know, in the beginning, and cash flow is everything. And it's not, not unlike any a lot of businesses or most businesses when you're starting something out. But I think restaurants have a particular way of bleeding you out quickly. Um, you know, they're very expensive to to construct. Um, labor is expensive. It's no longer cheap. You know, labor laws have changed and. Um, liability insurance is expensive and you've got just the amount of, of labor involved. You know, this is unless you're serving packaged, prepackaged food like a cafeteria, you have to produce all of this. So production's expensive and, you know, restaurant spaces are expensive. And, you know, I think a, a lot of people open up wanting to be a fully finished business day one. And so they invest a lot in the look and the graphics and the website, and they spend a, quite a bit of money. And a lot of that could be done in tiers along the way. Um, it doesn't need to be finished. 
It's interesting because I, I got two thoughts on that because we certainly know examples of restaurants that were in evolution, that were given the benefit of the doubt. We both worked at Kraft and that was kind of notorious for like the beginning when they opened. Um, there were a lot of people that said it just doesn't quite work that, you know, you pick your thing, you pick your side, you pick, you know, you pick your protein, you yeah. pick your side, pick your sauce, you pick your style of cooking and, and it didn't quite work. But when we worked there, it's like, it feel, it felt like, you know, it had already been open six, seven years at that point and it had come into its own and it had figured out what it wanted to be. But that's a case in point. You know, I was at Gramercy, it had been open six years by the time I showed up at Gramercy Tavern and it was still evolving. And I think that's the part that is good to, re, you know, remind new owners or new, you know, people who are venturing into the restaurant business is that you're never done tweaking a restaurant. Yeah. So that is, it's always going to evolve. And because of that, it, it really clearly signals like you don't, you're not done just because you open. So you don't have to be done when you open. So I've got, again, now two thoughts on that. Number one, I think there's a pressure, especially in New York City. We both live and work here in New York City. And there is pressure because that review comes within the first three, four months that there is a certain pressure put on operators to to get things pretty much there because, you know, they're not going to come and review you at but, the 14 But that even mark. strengthens my argument because I don't recall ever reading a a review that says, the food was great. The service was amazing. The matchbooks were horrible. <laughs> and I'm, you know, I do not recommend this restaurant. So, you know, the font, your, you know, how cute your menus are and all your paper goods and the, you know, how amazing your website, it's, it's irrelevant. So that's great. Cause that speaks to the second point that I was just thinking of that you, that you kind of sprung to mind, which is that, you know, especially over the pandemic, we've been talking a lot about the pivot, right? The pivot. And I yeah. think I think as we get past the pandemic, I think the lessons from the pandemic are, are going to be absorbed and, and put into practice moving forward. And it's not so much about pivoting your business, but about allowing your business to evolve, that you take on another revenue stream. You, you did this and this, but then you're also going to offer this, right? And it was easy to say, oh, we do dine-in, you know, we do dine-in. But now we're also going to do takeout or we're also going to do catering or at home meal kits or, you know, whatever it is. And I, and I think um, that spirit is there. Like you can start out being one kind of restaurant and you end up being another kind of restaurant. I th you know, I, I think in, in some ways it's a little bit of a gift to the industry because the industry was being choked out over the last couple of years. You know, the, the, uh, between rent increases, cost of food and cost of labor the profit margins have been really steadily declining over the last 20 years. And, you know, it's easy to, when you're not forced, it's easy to kind of stay in a business model that has been making sense for the last 70 years. Um, but at this point, you know, the restaurants who are going to survive are, are being forced to pivot and being forced to open up different revenue streams. And, you know, my guess and my assumption if they're smart and they're successful with that, they would continue doing that. And so, you know, maybe we're forging a new business model that is a little bit more in tune with current times and is more viable moving forward because the old one was rapidly becoming non-viable for a lot of restaurants. This is what I've been saying for uh, anybody who listens to the podcast know that I've, knows that I've been talking about this for eight months over the course of it. And over the last couple of months, I've been saying over and over again, 
you know, like the pandemic didn't break the restaurant industry. The, the, the industry was broken. What the pandemic did was just shine a light on all the chips and cracks. And, and, and now we can see it and we can't, uh, we can't avoid it anymore. You know, we, we could skate by and, you know, make a, you know, a, a little bit of a profit, you know, and, and kind of get through. But now we can't, you know, it, it just doesn't work. Yeah. And I mean, for me, the pandemic is, is an uncontrolled burn in a forest, you know, but there'll be growth that comes out of it. Yeah. I, I think it's funny. You said that you, you look at this as a gift because I feel the same way. I feel like our industry was just so static and, and again, just, you know, formulaic and it was just, you know, and we were just bleeding out. It's just, we had X number of profit margin. Again, a great restaurant, a restaurant that's killing it is making eight, 10% profit, something like that, right? You never hear about a restaurant making 22% profit. I do, but I always know they're lying. <laughs> <laughs> but they just don't, right? And then, but meanwhile, you can invest your money in a really good fund that returns 20, 25% next year. Sure, yeah. And that just doesn't exist in the restaurant industry. So, you know, something's gotta change. So, okay, so, um, getting the mindset right, uh, understanding that cash flow is the most important part. Hang on to your cash. Don't blow it all. Where are some places that people waste their money? Matchbooks, you said. Don't worry about the match, little matchbooks. Um, often it's, it's labor, you know. You look at the things you can, you can control. Um, I would say labor is, is usually the number one culprit. You overstaff thinking that you're going to have this tidal wave of guests descend on you the moment you open. And, you know, I, you know, of all of the restaurants that I've opened, only one generated a large group of diners in the first two weeks. So a lot of restaurants overhire by 50 to 100% what they need the first month or two or three you know, and then kind of wait for that business to, to come. Um, so you can save quite a bit. And, you know, that's, that's all money that's going out the door. That's all easily controlled um, labor. And so I would start with that. Um, the menu doesn't need to be encyclopedic. And you can start with a really tight, really good menu that highlights what you're doing exceptionally well, putting your best foot forward and attracting the, the core clientele that you're hoping to get. Hey, now we're talking about marketing. Yeah. You know, rent looks like moving forward rents, you know, should hopefully, um, be coming down and it seems like they're, they're progressing in that direction. But, you know, rent is often underestimated in terms of how detrimental it is to a restaurant to succeed. And, you know, a lot of operators will say, oh, well, you know, we'll make it up in this business. They overshoot their projections and, you know, overestimate how busy they're going to be in their first six months or their first year. And, you know, rent is, is, is crippling. I want to talk about this. So rent, is there a rule of thumb that people should kind of keep in mind for when they're, when they're looking at spots, you know, like, like what's too much? How do you know when it's too much? Well, you know, what's, what's under market? What's, you know, what's perfect? H how do you judge that? I mean, I, you know, I've always felt like it's easy to, to calculate a couple of things. And, and one I would start with is check average. You know, you have a menu, you can build out what the average check would be. That's not that difficult. And, you know, 
And I guess even if you wanted to just spitball it, you could say like, all right, well, our check average is going to be, you know, $45. And then building off of that, you can look at, you count up your total seats, you start using a percentage of occupancy. And if, you know, I actually, and I won't name the, the restaurant, but I did consult on a restaurant once that on just on a napkin, I did a quick math of, you know, here's your check average. They were open and I'm like, here's your check average and here's how many seats you have. And by my, you know, napkin math, you have to be full every single day of every month to break <laughs> even. And if you, if your requirement is a hundred percent occupancy on every service, you are not going to make it. I mean, that's just simple. Correct. So, you know, I think a lot of a lot of restaurants, they, you know, maybe they write business plans. I think more and more these days, you know, there is a business plan that's generated. And I'm talking about small operators, obviously, yeah. like, you know, I've worked with corporate groups and worked for a corporate group for, for years. And, you know, that's they have their own um, f foolish moments. <laughs> but, uh, you know, generally, it's not that they don't have a business plan, but um, I think small operators either just write it to get the loan or to get the investor and then they chuck it in the drawer. Um, but it's supposed to be a living document. And if you've got your opening budgets, you should be using them and, you know, using that as a, as a barometer, because especially your first 12 months of operation, you have no historical data. Yeah. So yeah. how do you know if you're doing well? And, you, you know, you may be looking at your bank account and that's generally going down. So that's not a great, you know, indicator of, of your potential for success. So, you know, using that, those initial projections because they are, it's, it is guesswork and there's value in that. And so it doesn't matter how perfect your initial projections were. It's really valuable to know if we're plus or minus them and by how much. And then you have to make adjustments. Yeah, so you need to know the numbers. You got to build your projections to, to have a baseline or at least a, an idea. And then, you know, you got to go back and look at it every month and say, okay, did we hit it? Did we, did we not hit it? How, how, how far over did we, did we make it? How far under were we? And then you recalibrate every single month. Um, but being conservative with your numbers as you're looking at spaces and just say. Yeah, and I'm in, you know, that's something that, you know, food prices can go up and down. You know, you can cut labor, but you can't cut rent. And it's, you know, it's really crippling when you've got a rent that is 15 or 20 percent or 30 percent too high and you start to do your numbers. And, you know, you can use your your opening budget and just change the rent number. And I think that's the best way to illustrate how debilitating rent can be to your overall success and your profitability is just change your rent number in your, your opening business plan, your opening budget and see what that does to the bottom line. Yeah. It wrecks it. Yeah. It's really funny because I always talk about the, the budget template that, that I, you know, kind of pass around and, um, and I always, you know, I say, you know, listen, plug in different numbers, you know, mess around with oh, the numbers yeah. and see what that does to it and see what that does to your overall profitability and whether you can break even, when you, whether you can make a profit, when you'll be able to repay your investors just by plugging in these numbers and changing them. Um, it's going to help you get an idea of, of what's possible. Completely. And, you know, you can do that with labor, um, you know, and you can see that. You know, I've done that for my own, you know, business plans that I've written. You know, you start to plug in 
well, here's my assumption on labor, and I'm going to need X, you know, servers per shift, and for, you know, six hours, and I'm going to need bartenders, and this is how many I have planned. And, you know, just changing a couple of those key components when you're multiplying that over 364 days of service, um, or if you're a nice guy, 363 days of service, you know, <laughs> Christmas and New Year's Day off, um, then, you know, it can change the the end of the line numbers dramatically. And you're only talking about adding, you know, five bodies to the equation or 10 bodies. And you go from, you know, you're at 7% profit to like losing four. This is all really good. Uh, I love that we're talking about this. So what else, um, again, talking about that person who's sitting on the sidelines saying like, I'm finally going to own my own restaurant. I'm going to open my own restaurant. What, what else do they need to know? They got their mind, their mindset straight. They got their head on straight. They've got, you know, they've got a good understanding. Okay. They need to, you know, watch their rent. They need to, you know, monitor cash flow. Um, they need to raise way more money than they anticipated so that they've got a good reserve. Uh, what else, what else do they need to be armed with? I think on the, um, on the personal and the, on the personal staffing side, or I should say personnel side, um, I think that a lot of new owners come in saying, you know, we're going to hire, we're going to hire management and they're going to run it and they're going to have our best interests. Um, and I don't mean to denigrate, you know, fellow restaurant managers and, but it, to me, that's, it's, it's foolish. And I've also seen it in, in real time that frankly, it's, it's just not, it's not the best business practice. And, you know, there is no one who's going to take your business as seriously as you and even the best managers um i think will will not be able to have that level of commitment and this is a you know an industry that requires a very very high level of commitment so and i'm not saying that you have to clean the toilets and you have to 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 be there in all of the minutiae but if you don't know how to run a restaurant and if you don't know how it operates then you should be involved on a daily basis learning it um, it's also an industry that you know people can smell when you don't know what you're talking about and there's enough um, there's enough kind of industry specific you know knowledge that it's hard to fake that and if they know that you don't know then you know it's game on you've certainly lost uh, an edge in profitability and cost control, you know, there's just going to be a little bit less um, attention to detail that uh, if they knew you were sharp and, you know, you were on it, they would be dotting their eyes. And I'm not even saying you've got to be, you know, I'm, uh, you should definitely be positive and, and, you know, I've worked with amazing people who are owners of restaurants who are lovely. So it has nothing to do with, you know, kind of cracking the whip, so to speak. No, no. I just want to clarify that. No, I did. Listen, but it's it's just having that know inside knowledge. Yeah, yeah you, you got to know what's going on. You can't... Um, <laughs> I worked with a, with an owner once who said, you know, anytime somebody says, you know, just trust me. It's like, I just want to scream and fire them because, like, I just need to be, you know, in on it. Like, no, I don't trust you. I don't trust anybody because this is my restaurant. You're not, uh, you know, you're not invested literally in the way that, that yeah, I am. Yeah. Um, I've talked about this in the show but uh, before, but I think moving forward especially, um, it's funny, I, I talked about this before the pandemic, uh, but I think restaurant management uh, as, a, as a career is going to change significantly 
after this because I think a lot of restaurants, you know, aside from the three Michelin star places that need a lot of bodies to get the job done, I think gone are the days of GM, AGM, service director, uh, wine director, uh, head bartender, sommelier, sommelier, floor manager, floor manager, maitre d'. Like, I just think those days are done. I think you're going to have to get one person who does a lot of those roles. And certainly you've done that over the course of your career. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got an incredible uh, wealth of knowledge uh, with wine. And so you've been very valuable because you've got such great business savvy. And so you've been able to to be like a general manager for a place, and you've also been able to manage their wine program. Correct. But I think moving yep. forward, I think that's going to be the recipe. I think these, you know, these <laughs> cushy gigs, I don't mean cushy, because restaurant management's horrible. It's really, it's really, really hard. Long hours and just, you know, putting out fires all day long. But I think that's done. I also think, to your point, I think we're gonna start seeing a lot more like uh, like managing partners, right? Instead of a GM, instead of a service director, we're gonna get this, you know, managing partner, people who are, you know, get equity in there, who actually have a horse in the race. Do you, do you think that's gonna happen? How do, you, how do you see this moving forward? I mean, I agree with you in the sense that like the management structures that came from fine dining, you know, fine dining is done. And, um, and that's th- those were the only type of restaurants that supported those type of tiered teams, yep. you know, they, the extended, you know, management. Um, and the, since 2008, you know, since, since the market crash, we've seen that being stripped down into more, you know, fast and agile type of management teams. Um, so I think that would continue. I mean, we certainly, there's nothing given the current situation, you know, in the economy and, and, you know, fallout from the pandemic that would say, well, we're going to, you know, we're going to be, you know, the industry is going to be killing it, you yeah. know, it's certainly not in the cards over the next, you know, 12 to 12 months or two years. So, I mean, this management's still, you know, a necessary function, you know, do I think that there are, uh, you know, there's going to be the, the very casual, the low tier restaurants that I think will actually strip away management. Yep. And it'll just be, you know, the employees are, are basically a little bit more electronically monitored and they're kind of just running their own shifts. Yeah. Um, you know, and I'm not talking about fast food that's going to just fully automated. Yep. But I think in that, the you know, very casual. The quick service and the fast the casual quick and service, stuff like that. You're going to see management kind of be stripped out and it may just be, you know, a function of uh, maintaining the cash box and yeah. the deposits and the banking and yeah and what's really interesting though with like fine dining is that we look back 30 40 years and fine dining didn't have the kind of staffing it has now i think it's very very top heavy and back there in the old days right like the old days of Le Cirque and you know it, you know even earlier than that there was a gm he worked nine to five he never saw a shred of of dinner service. No, Maitre d actually Maitre d. Ran, ran the dining room. And then it was just the captains. And the captains were paid very, very well because it was all through the tip pool. And the tip pool is very lean considering, you know, as opposed to what it is now. So when you talk about, you know, this is a function of fine dining, it wasn't always a function of fine dining. It's just, I think it got very heavy over the last 20 years as food culture kind of got, you know, got blew up and, and True, became. But it also changed with legislation because, of course. you know, the the idea of a captain being a supervisor would then prohibit him from or her from participating in the tip pool. And so it was now necessitated that it moved to a 
management function. Right. You know, so I think that the, the labor law changes kind of prompted a move away from, you know, more money in the hourly's pockets right. to more money in payroll on management. Yeah. Unfortunately, I mean, you know, and I worked as a captain and I think that the system's great. And, you know, frankly, those are the type of people that you would love to have running a restaurant because they know the ins and outs of, of what you're doing. Right. And they know the menu and they know the clients and like f on a first hand, first name basis often. Right. So who better to run your restaurant? So we're kind of going into this. I mean, I really believe this, that we're going into something new that like, again, a lot of restaurants are top heavy with management. I think that, and I think that's going. Correction, they were. They were. <laughs> and we can't return to the way it was because of legislation that's happened over the last, you know, 20 years. Um, so I'll be really curious to see kind of what happens next, but I think there will definitely be a constant, uh, you know, a consolidation of, um, of roles that people will do one thing and another It's no, no longer. You're, they're just going to do one thing. Yeah. And I also think that, you know, a lot of, um, there were too many restaurants. I mean, yeah. I hate to say that, but New York had too many restaurants and, you know, we used to have the really casual neighborhood spots. And then there was kind of like clubby, you know, good food, but clubby places. And then there was fine dining. And so there was a real kind of differentiation between these tiers. Yep. Um, and, you know, back in those days, you didn't expect your neighborhood corner spot to have a sommelier or a wine director. And, you know, it kind of got absurd where, you know, you were seeing over the last 10 <laughs> years, you know, places in, you know, neighborhoods that you wouldn't expect that had a sommelier or a wine director or like a cocktail, you know, director. And they were also charging prices that were almost in line with fine dining. Yeah. And I think it's one of my only uh, sadnesses with seeing the, the decrease in fine dining because I always actually advocated that you at least got value there. Yeah. You know, you actually got a lot for your money. Um, so I think that you're going to see a lot of that go away. You know, these the little corner spots, one, they can't, they can't sustain that. And, you know, even though it was younger, um, younger people coming into those positions, you know, it was a nice gateway for people to get their feet wet. Um, I just don't see that being something that continues, you know, in the future. So you're coming out of this pandemic. Would you open, where would you open a place? You were dying to open your restaurant and everything we've said has not talked you out of opening a restaurant. Where would you go open a restaurant? You know, I've for, for years I've said I would never do it in New York City, at least not with my own money. Um, I actually think New York would be a great place to be looking now. Why? Because you're seeing such a cataclysmic failure. Um, I mean, this is really an extinction event that's going on. Currently, they're saying 1,500 restaurants, but I think that number is way north of there. Um, you know, could be easily be double that. Um, so just for the sheer economics of it, you've got a lot of open spaces. A lot of them potentially are good spaces. Um, you've got landlords who are bleeding out in multiple directions, especially if they're, you know, commercial. If they're commercial only, like they've been bleeding. You know, not just restaurants are, are avoiding paying rent. Yeah. You know, the dry cleaners are too. Yeah. So you've got a lot of uh, potentially great spaces coming out of the market. The market is definitely not um, seeing high demand. You've got an elimination of quite a bit of that oversupply of restaurants, which will just, I think, 
speed up over the coming months as we go through the second you know potential lockdown and that's a good scenario yeah you know i hate to say it i you know it's on the backs of the dead that you would be building but in every crisis there is opportunity there is that's yeah. for sure and um, that's the only reason i would say new york city because if you'd asked me that last year i would have said you know westchester or you know connecticut or you know new jersey you know yeah. So extrapolating that out then over the entire country, would you say, do you think a lot of cities are going to be in a similar situation as New York City is? I mean, I can't speak for um, a lot of cities. I think you know, each one's kind of a unique place in itself. I mean, obviously, but I it, because it, it depends on the saturation, you know, you kind of need those same quotients like was were there too many restaurants to start off with? If you can check that box, and then I would say yes. Yeah. You know, were the rents too high? Some places weren't right. there. You know, New York's been there for a long time, um, and I think New York, especially even removed from some of the other classic dining cities like Chicago and, and San Francisco, New York was really suffering the last bunch of years under an influx of of outside restaurateurs who needed to be in New York and were willing to pay, you know, ridiculous rents, and so. That was something that really was unique over the last 10 years. You know, traditionally, New York was not very favorable to outside restaurateurs and outside chefs. Um, and we took a special relish in destroying them in their reviews <laughs> and with our peers. Um, but, you know, it just became a flood of, of chefs from all over the world who wanted to open restaurants here. That has definitely stopped. Yeah. So is that happening in other cities? Um, you know, if it is, then that's another good scenario. Yeah. You know, less competition is good. And, you know, I've been having those conversations with colleagues in, in the industry who are at other companies and other restaurants. And, you know, frankly, if you can survive this, like the, the restaurants that survive this are going to come out smelling good on the other end of yeah. this. There's a good potential for better profits, you know, greater business. And I think a loyal, more loyal clientele uh, and that we're, you know, we're starting to see that, that, that New York, the people are starting to realize the level of this extinction right. and are starting to really try to respond. Um, sometimes it's just verbal in support, but the, you know, I'm hearing now, like, we're just thankful that you're still here. Yeah. You know, it's, it's really at that level that people are, getting cognizant that their favorite place may not be there next week. Yeah, it's true. That's true. And it doesn't matter that it was busy for the last 10 years. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. The other piece to this conversation is that I can't help but feel that the suburbs are a really compelling place to put a great restaurant. Like, I think the city needs more everyday restaurants, like, you know, restaurants you can go to for Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and put a great restaurant out in the suburb. Be the best restaurant by far. You know, put like a one, two Michelin star restaurant out there and people who don't want to travel all the way into the city, who aren't going to be in the city five days a week, just want to come in once a week and once every other week or once a month. I think it's, I mean, it's certainly a, a an intelligent comment for the time, you know, uh, right now, it definitely makes sense. And I can say my first restaurant job was at a very successful suburban restaurant in my hometown. And that restaurant still exists. Yeah. So, you know, 25 years later, it's still packed. And their, 
doing what they've always been doing, but it's it's high quality and it it's informed and it's um, it's well run. But they're still doing what they were doing in the '90s, and you know it's a different clientele. But it, that doesn't mean that you can't create something that will be successful, satisfying, and profitable. Yeah. All right, we're gonna take a quick break. We will be right back. Our 100th episode is coming up at the beginning of February, and I want to hear from you. I've been talking about this the last few weeks, and I mean it. Go visit our website, restaurantstrategypodcast.com. You'll see a link in the upper right corner. It says record a message. Do that. Click that button. It'll take you to a page. You'll see there's a like a rough script I want you to follow. Just tell me your name, where you're from, and tell me something that you've learned, some something you've gotten out of the podcast here. We're, we're coming up on two years, and I know, uh, I know the community is growing. I know a lot of you guys have gotten a lot of uh, value from this show, and I want to hear from you. I, w- I want you guys to hear from each other. Uh, so please go do that. Take a few minutes. It can be five seconds long. It can be as long as five minutes long, Wh- whatever you feel comfortable with. I've already received a bunch of messages already, putting together a really great 100th episode. It's going to be celebrating you guys. Please help me do that. Restaurantstrategypodcast.com. Click the blue button that says record a message. All right, cheers. We're back. Um, so I want to talk right now about, uh, again, for all those people who are sitting on the sidelines, they want to open a place, the pandemic's over, and what We're do they do? We're back to normal. We're back to normal. And they say, okay, now I'm going to jump in. I'm going to open my own place. Uh, what do you do first? Do you find a, come up with a concept and then find a space, or do you find a space and then uh, create a concept to fit that space? I mean, obviously, you can do it either way. Um, I think it's smarter to have a concept first. Okay. I think if you're creating a concept around a space, you are boxing yourself into something that may not be appropriate because concepts, in my opinion, they generally are, it's not a wrong concept. I mean, sometimes there's just (laughs) wrong, but you know, generally the concept is not the issue. It's the timing of the concept. You know, it all goes in waves. It's very cyclical. Um, you know, if you were opening a wine bar in 2010, like it had to be really good because that happened seven years ago, 10 years ago. So, you know, there's kind of waves of we're into wine bars, we're into cocktail bars, you know, fine dining's in, it's out, you know, so you really want to be ahead of that curve. Um, and none of those curves last forever. I mean, there are places that will just be institutions and will survive, you know, the waves up and down. Um, and that kind of buck that trend, but you know, generally restaurants follow that trend. So if you're deciding on your concept based on your, your space, you're already putting a handcuff on yourself that I think you shouldn't. Um, I think it's really important to have your concept. Um, ideally you'd have uh, your chef and then start looking for spaces and you know, I think the important thing is that everyone thinks they've got more time. I and mean, we're talking about opening, right? Like, yep. you know, everyone thinks they have more time. And I've just seen it in the teams that I've worked with, uh, sometimes as a consultant and, and sometimes as the, the GM, that all points are converging on an opening date. And one practice that I've always done is using a critical path you know, and having a real plan and target dates. So let's talk about a critical path. I actually had that on my notes and I uh, explained to people what a critical path is, uh, because that's something I learned from you. Uh, Chris and I have worked together uh, 
I don't know, five different times over the course of 13 years on a bunch of different uh, restaurants. And so um, so I know uh, some of his systems very, very well. And he introduced me to this idea of a critical bath. Uh, explain to people who may not know what it is. Well, it's the chef's most hated thing. We can start with that. <laughs> chefs, Why? Um, one, they don't like to open the emails all the time. And it's involved. You know, it's a very long spreadsheet, which is also chef kryptonite. Um, <laughs> it's boring. It has all of these mundane tasks that are laid out and target dates. And so this has to get done by this date in order for this other thing to happen by this date. Right. Uh, it should be ordered. Right. And so everything happens from now until the end of your horizon, whenever that time horizon Correct. is. Correct. Yeah. And what's beautiful about it is you really can see if you're falling behind. And most restaurants, when they're in opening, they take a lot of time. It's like meetings about meetings, a lot of discussion, but not a lot of action. And then you start to get closer and closer and the work gets more frantic and more frantic. And then frankly, you open up and you're not ready. And then you get reviewed and you do poorly because you weren't ready. Right. And it's unfortunate because a lot of that is, is really avoidable if you had just utilized your time more effectively when you were nine months out instead of nine days out. And a critical path is, is wonderful for that. And you can use different, you know, there's different charts and, and you don't have to use a, you know, you could use a Gantt. Um, but there are other, you know, options. But as long as you've got all of your major tasks put down on paper with target dates, at least you have a barometer. It's just like having a budget for your actual tasks. Right. I, it's, uh, it's, I like the linear nature of it because it just, you know, you're working towards something specific and that is sometime in the future and there's X number of things. You know, you can't put in this until that goes in. You can't do this until, until that goes in. I think it's, uh, I think it's really helpful. And, you know, and frankly, and it's not, it's not reasonable to expect any one manager or any team even to remember all of the minute details. And, you know, I will say it's easier these days in terms of what we're offering to guests, you know, fine dining restaurants were exceedingly complicated and had a lot of amenities and a lot of service, you know, peculiarities right. and required a lot of attention to detail. The casual nature of restaurants, the training involved, a lot of it's less. It's, it's, it's much less than it used to be. You know, you're not teaching the average guy or, or girl at a corner restaurant how to do tableside filleting a fish. You know, it's just, you know, we don't have bonbon carts and, you know, right. it's simple. But opening a restaurant is still the same steps. And I will say that the legislation and the, the paperwork is much more complex these days. So, right. you know, there are always things that will be unforeseen. And if you can eliminate at least the stuff that you can control, then you have the energy and the time to focus on the unforeseens because they will come up. You will not open on time, most likely. Your construction will not finish on time. Um, almost never I've seen construction finish on time. Yep. And I've seen it run even a year or two late. Yep. I mean, it's jaw dropping, <laughs> but I've seen that happen, yep. you know, where you're 12 months beyond your your construction date. It's crazy. So, you know, at least knocking out the things that you can do, you know, if you're putting together your staff paperwork, let's just take something simple. 
an employee handbook and a service manual. And these days, none of this has to be on paper. It used to be all printed. And I remember going to the the printer and dropping out, dropping off a, a memory stick and having it professionally bound. And yeah. you, you, none of that. You, you you can put it on Schedule Fly or any of the scheduling programs and put all your documents on there. But you have to have it written. And you know, if you're doing that a week out, I'm going to ask like, what have you been doing the last year? Right. <laughs> and those are the times where you should be focusing on the people because, you know, I think that's another thing. And I, I don't don't want to go off on another direction, but I think one of the biggest mistakes that that restaurants make, and it's not just opening restaurants, it's restaurants in general, is focusing on the and I kind of touched on this before. It's, you know, the font and the the look and the, you know, is this the right votive? And well, we're going to let's test out 72 different tablecloths and which one feels best against our face. You know, (laughs) that does not matter. And what matters is the people. And if you don't focus and in your, your final two weeks, if you're not completely focused on the people that you've just hired that you don't know, and you're not training them all day, every day and spending time with them and creating a team and creating a culture and creating a cohesive unit, you're not going to make it. Yeah. So then let's talk about that because that was uh, also on my notes here. Because uh, I want to talk about I want to talk about the people. Because I swear th- I did not look at your notes, Chip. No, it's I have very few notes written down here. I just figured we'd just jam for a little while, and there's <laughs> just cool. a couple of things I wanted to talk about. But let's talk about the people because I think there are three pieces to that, and I think uh, you've been doing this for a long time, and you're really good with people, and so I think you can shed some uh, some insight here. But uh, there's hiring, there's training. And there's managing, and there are three pieces to the the personnel. I don't know thing. Give me your thoughts on all of those uh, as it relates to a restaurant opening and just uh, running a successful restaurant. Okay. Um, well, we'll take the first one, hiring, and I'm going to talk about I'll talk about management and about hourlies. Great. So, in terms of hiring, I am a believer in both management and hourlies that I really don't care about the resume. Um, I've, I've filtered through resumes, you know, I could put out an ad and, you know, maybe there's 200 responses. I remember doing, um, you know, open houses and having, you know, 200 applicants show up and going through 150 interviews. Um, the best successes that I've had and truly the most valuable teammates that I've hired have almost universally been the ones with poor resumes. So what the one thing I do look for is longevity. So I will eliminate candidates when I see, oh, they're three months, six months, three months. If you, if they can't stay at a place for a year, I'm not going to invest the time and money, money and energy into training them and bringing them onto the team and giving them the opportunity to to learn the craft while they kind of take away from the business. Right. You know, if I was going to do that, I could just go out and get someone seasoned who's going to be surly with the guests, but at least knows how to make money, you know. But the goal is to bring people on who have great energy, who are great teammates, and who believe in the project. Um, and often those are the people who are a little bit new to the industry. They may not be from New York, you know. I worked for Danny Meyer and he's a big believer in 
bringing in, you know, those corn fed Midwestern kids and, <laughs> you know, they're smiling and they just got off the, you know, MTA bus like six days ago. Yeah. Um, and I was one of those kids. We were both. So there is some, some truth to that, but it doesn't have to be a corn fed kid from Nebraska. What you, what I look for is someone who has shown aptitude. So I look at their resume. If they've got a 3.9 GPA and something completely unrelated, I at least say they know how to study, they can retain information, and most likely they're intelligent. That's one of my, my prerequisites. And then what I look for is what I call spark. You know, it is a people person industry and there are plenty of people who are nice, but you're looking for that spark of life, that magnetism, that engaging personality, um, that openness, that, that love for interacting with other people. I think that's really important. And, you know, I, I ask myself, is this person trainable? You know, will they, will they be a part of this or are they just here to make money? Because right. if it's just about the money, I don't want them. So then that leads perfectly into this idea of training, right? So like when we get into hiring and then training and managing these people. So talk, uh, talk about that side if you can. Um, I think training runs in two forms in most restaurant openings. There either is um, over the top training that is so incredibly boring that I can't believe that the new hirees have not walked out. <laughs> or, you know, and that tends to skew to the, like the super corporate thing where you're, you know, spending four and a half hours on, um, you know, fire safety and talking about like carrying hot plates. And, you know, a lot of this is common sense. And I'm not saying to avoid, you know, they should have a fire drill walkthrough and you can do the, you know, here's where the fire extinguishers are and here's the fire exit. Like that's just, that's just being responsible. Um, so I'm not saying that, but, you know, having an employee manual and then reading it line by line, that's not training. You know, that is not training. Yes. I've been in those trainings. Yes. And we all have. And, you know, that to me. And then on the other side, the there are a lot of restaurants that just do none. Right. Which to me is I don't know sure which one's worse. Um <laughs> I've, because I worked at fairly, you know, fairly successful restaurants when I was early on in my career, I never got to experience the zero training. Um, I probably would have opted for that because the other coin, you know, the other side of it was such excessive training, but, um, there's a happy medium. And, and again, it should be job focused. You know, you can break your groups out. You have very disparate groups and they're doing disparate jobs. You know, so why are the line cooks sitting in on a on a front of the house wine training? Right. You know, they may want to. And I think there's always those opportunities to do cross training later. But you really need to be focused on the people who are going to open the restaurant. Um, so it's not an all inclusive training and break it out into small groups and do intensive trainings. And it's also an opportunity for your junior managers to get involved in owning a department and starting from day one with them. Yep. This is something that you've uh, been really good at. I think it's one of the reasons why we've worked really well together is that you're, um, you're big on delegation. Um, you don't micromanage, you don't overmanage, you know. I appreciate that you didn't refer to it as lazy. 
<laughs> uh, it's never once dawned on me that uh, that that stemmed from laziness. Uh, but I'll rethink. Uh, I'll rethink now. No, you you do. Uh, but it, it is a way of empowering uh, the people who work for you and and work with you. Um, to give them set tasks and, and to let them uh, have a sense of ownership over pieces of it. Certainly, I've had that when I've worked uh, with you. I mean, I appreciate that, but I have to say that it's out of necessity. But a lot of people don't see it that way. It's impossible to do all of the tasks required. And, you know, I think when I was younger, I had that sense of that it was important for me to be involved in everything, every little thing, every decision. Um, Frankly, I didn't develop teams that well back then, and it wasn't very empowering for people. It also was, I think, it could be at times humiliating or, you know, almost belittling in that I wasn't trusting them to do even the most basic of tasks. So you're losing your teammates left and right by that practice. But it's also to get everything done in, in a rapid time, you have to be able to let go and you have to be able to um, empower people and you get so much more out of them when they feel like they have a voice, they've got a decision, you know, they can, they can plug in. And it doesn't just pertain to openings. I think it has no, to do with, you know, how you maintain a restaurant a year in it, two years in, three years in. Frankly, there's no, I don't look at hiring for an opening any different than I would seven months later. Um, you know, ideally you're not having to rehire an entire staff. If you are doing that, then you've done a very poor job managing. Well, but. and the difference is, is that in the beginning, you're trying to establish the culture and that when you're hiring seven months in, the culture already exists. And hopefully you're just trying to plug into the culture right. that you've already created. That's always the hard part in the beginning to make sure that everybody understands the vision. You know, why does this restaurant exist? What are we all about? How do we, you know, but how do we exist? But even within that, and I think I didn't finish what I was saying before, is you know we all focus on what's written in the, in the manuals and you know you can repeat a, a mantra a mission statement over and over and over but like that's actually not the core the core is you know if you're working with with restaurant owners who are genuinely like great people like that's the core it's you know believing and buying into this couple that are pouring all their finances and their heart and soul into this restaurant and you're a part of them realizing their dream it's not the mantra it's the people that you're working with and i think that's the one thing with restaurants that the belief in them and the willingness to go through war because opening a restaurant is can be psychotic um, <laughs> to say the least i've done nine openings and I've done six and, you know, I remember one of them where, you know, the average weekly hourly, you know, work week was close to a hundred hours, it yeah. was 90 some hours a week. Um, that's not normal, you know, that's, <laughs> not, not. that's not healthy. Um, so you really are at war, you know, you have the people around you and you're doing this as a team. Um, and everyone has choices and i think that's something that restaurant owners don't always grasp that you can demand loyalty you can demand everyone stick to the script but that's not a real recipe for loyalty you know they need to believe in you as a person they need to see that you're ethical they need to see that you're going to make the right choices that aren't always in your own financial interest that you're 
looking out for their interests too, that it's a partnership. You know, you can't demand loyalty and you can't demand people plug in if they know that they're not actually a part of it and if they're not important. Yeah, again, it's that idea of enrollment, right? You, you show people that there's a way that you can be a part in this. There's a there's the way you, that you can bring value, that you can, you know, that you can make this better, that, that I cannot do this on my own, right? That's so much, it's not said enough, but in the restaurants, we can't do the restaurant alone. If, if the two of us go and open a restaurant, we need at least four other people who can do it. And I'm talking about a 200 square foot place. We just need more people than, than our skill set will provide. That, that you need other people there. And so, you know, th that's a big part of it too, you know, uh, making people feel valued, making, you know, and, and recognizing their, um, their contribution. And I think the sad part of, of the missteps with owners or managers with their employees is that most of these people, most of the employees aren't asking for much. It could just be a thank you. Isn't it so true? It could be like, you know, an accommodation for, you know, a family member is sick. And the, they've, you know, I've seen that where I remember one manager came up to me and it was working for me. And we had an employee who had worked for the company for like 10 years and didn't come to a shift. And, I, and the manager asked me, it's like, well, you're going to fire him, right? And I said, how long has, has, you know, has this person been with us? And he's like, well, like nine years. <laughs> and I said, how many times has he done this? Never was the response. And I said, after nine years, I'm going to fire this guy because one day in nine years, he didn't show up. Yeah. I said, first of all, <laughs> let's see when he shows up because yeah. I want to talk to him and find out what's going on. And there was an issue. It was something that was delicate. He was embarrassed. We made good on it. We didn't fire him. We retained an employee, and he's still there. Yeah. So, you know, each, each person has that opportunity to say, how can I pull someone towards us or push them away? So much of it is just about acknowledging the contribution, thanking them for what they do. Acknowledging their humanity. Totally. I mean, it was funny because I relaunched a restaurant last year, and, uh, you know, it, we used it as an opportunity to kind of recalibrate the culture of the place. And one of the things that I brought to the table is I said, you know, every night at pre-shift, right, at lineup, when we when we all get together, front of the house and back of the house, we all get together, I said, I just want to call out somebody on the running staff, somebody on the, the busing staff, somebody on the, you know, one of the captains, uh, one of the line cooks, one of the, we're going to call out somebody every night for something that they did the night before, for something that, you know, and it can be something as simple as, you know what I mean? Like you fill in the blank, it wasn't much, but in front of the staff of 20, 30, 40 people, we just said, this person, you know, went above and beyond. This person did something and we recognize it, we acknowledge that, it improved it. And man, it started changing the culture, you know, in the place that it was just, it took two minutes out of the meeting, a 20 minute meeting, it took two minutes to just, you know, address, to, you know, find people that, that did things. It was just, you know, and people started going out of their way to, to go above and beyond. Not that they like wanted the, the acknowledgement, but they realized, oh, this is the kind of place where people go above and beyond. This is the kind of place where, you know, my contribution is valued and it's such a big deal. I also think that, you know, you can look at training or maybe I should say discipline you know, because a restaurant needs discipline. You can't have um, a restaurant run efficiently without rules and regulations and all of that. But in my mind, they're meant to be broken. Um, I don't, you know, I play a little loose with some of those hard and fast rules because 
it's a moving it's a moving target in a lot of ways those are meant to be i think like boundaries you know sidelines to the game and what happens you know how the game is played in between those boundaries can change every night and should change every night absolutely Uh, but there are boundaries just to let you know this is where the game's being played right and you know for me i look at even discipline as an opportunity where you can you can be using positive reinforcement or you can be focusing on negative i'd rather reward people for when they're doing well than scold them when they're doing poorly you get so much more out of people when you're consistently rewarding good behavior good quality work excellent you know added added value you know coming in and doing extra those are the types that you know you do start to build that as culture that you're rewarding people when they're doing more. You're rewarding them when they're, when they're excelling. People see that. They want to be a part of that. Or they also even just want to get the reward. I'm fine with that. But it tends to drag people towards the positive instead of a beat down on someone who then complains to his coworker that he got a beat down, yeah. who complains to the other person. Yeah. And it becomes a real spiral of negativity. It's so easy to, I mean, we talk about culture. You, you brought it up, you know, at the very beginning of this conversation. It, it's so true. It makes a difference in, you know, the day-to-day, certainly in <laughs> the owner's lives, the manager's lives, the other employees, and it, and the guests feel that. They feel if it's a, a positive place or a negative place. Yeah. And, you know, one other trick that I do is everyone needs to have kind of like an arch nemesis, I would say. Explain. And so... One of the restaurant groups that I worked for, I was a director of operations, and we had, we had just opened, and we were looked at as the underperforming, ugly, you know, stepchild of the group, and, which is unfair. We were brand new. But I started to have fun with that and kind of challenged the team. I was very vocal about that. I was like, you know, you know what everyone in the restaurant group thinks? that we're the, un, you know, we're not capable. And we are, well, we'll just, call, we'll just put it out there. We're the losers, you know. We're like the, the bad news bears of this restaurant group. <laughs> and that actually fired up the people that work there. And they were like, well, you know what? That's bullshit. We're great. And we're going to show them. And within six months, we were outperforming multiple restaurants. And they were looking at us like, not only were we outperforming them and embarrassing them, but they were looking at us to see what we were doing and trying to figure out, well, what's going on over there? You know, and that was within its own group. Yeah. If you need to pick the restaurant down the street, like pick whoever you want your, your arch nemesis to be, but it doesn't have to be a restaurant. It doesn't have to be another business, but giving goals, setting some targets, using some tools to fire up the team, to bring them together in a shared vision is super important. No, I think it's I think it's absolutely true. One of the things I talk about all the time is that, you know, one of the keys to this podcast is about taking complicated marketing concepts, boiling them down, making them easy to understand, and most important, um, actionable, right? You know, so that you can leave this podcast and say, I- I'm gonna go and do X, Y, and Z and move the needle in my business. And um, one of the things we talk about is the importance of identifying your competitors. You know, and, and not as somebody to like beat, but just saying you got an audience, right? There, there are people who love what you do, who are here to, you know, you know, who want your, you know, the meal that you're providing, the kind of experience you're providing. 
And by identifying your competitors, which is like, who else is trying to vie for those same dollars? Because there are only so many dollars in any, in any market. And so they're either spending them with you or somewhere else. And so by identifying your competitors, you figure out like where you are and then you can create separation, right? Like every restaurant has a series of competitors and, you know, falls into a couple different categories. Um, but yeah, it's that, it's that idea of the, uh, of the arch nemesis that like, you know, to, in a certain way, you just have to beat those guys. You just have to do it better, more interesting, you know, offer, you know, I, I don't know what it is, but you've got to beat those guys and it's not a bad thing. Yeah. I mean, it's easier to focus on something, you know, tangible than, oh, you've got to beat the industry. You right. know, that's daunting. But if right. I only have to beat those guys, I can do that. Well, it's this idea, right? Like, you know, like, oh, we're not doing very well. Okay, so what do we need to do? Like, oh, we just need more covers. Like, well, okay, well, of course you need more covers, but let's be specific because you can't really fit any more covers in on Saturday night. So you don't just need quote unquote more covers. You need more covers on Mondays and Tuesdays, or you need an early seating on Thursdays and Fridays. You know, get specific to understand the ways in which you can, you know, you can grow to get better. But like just these vague blanket statements, uh, you know, don't work. That just reminded me, um, you know, one other piece of advice in terms of opening that I think is really important is, you know, let's say that you're fortunate that you're actually seen and discovered and that you have a good flow of business early on, which is not the case often. But there are some restaurants that got the right look, they're in the right neighborhood, they're in the right spot, and they, they get some flow in the beginning. It's so easy to run into that kind of attitude of, look, we're busy. And these people will always be here. And that is your opportunity. Like consider yourself fortunate. You actually have butts and seats and you're 50% or 75% or, you know, amazingly you're a hundred percent full. Um, that's your opportunity because I will say that, you know, most restaurants, when they are busy, they get complacent. They get into that attitude of, well, there's a guest here today and there will be one tomorrow. Right. Um, and that's why I was saying early on that, you know, you can walk away from a restaurant about as long as you can walk away from an infant <laughs> um, because neglect is, is swift and it's, it's really crushing. And what you will see, and, you know, I, and, I can tell you the pattern. The pattern is if you're neglecting the restaurant, if the management's poor, if the kitchen's not performing, you will see that you'll start to have a little bit of like decline and it'll, you know, be 2%, 1%. It's very, very minor. And then all of a sudden it'll start to speed up and then it falls off a cliff. Yep. And you go from like, I, you know, let's just, we'll throw out a random number. Say you're doing $100,000 a week. And then six months later, you're at like 92. And you say, well, it's not seasonal, you know, it depends on where your restaurant is. Right. You know, if we're in Phoenix or somewhere warm, like maybe they, you know, maybe they're not suffering from the seasonal thing like New York restaurants do, but, um, but then, you know, you'll see, I was at a hundred, six months later, I kind of went down thousand dollars each month. Now I'm at 94. And then t three months later, you're at 62. You know, yeah. and you fall off a cliff and you close quickly. So any customers that you have in early, you should be really bending over backwards to accommodate, you know, to not have that air of, um, 
you know, that they're lucky to be there. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. You know, that we're so exclusive. I can tell you that no exclusive place stays exclusive forever. Yep. That does not last. And it, you're only going to last if you retain the people who are coming. And it's so much easier to retain the people who have already dined with you yeah. than to get new ones. Yep. That's 100% true. It's uh, Listen, it's cheaper to keep a customer than to get a new one. But this goes back to this, you know, now we come full circle and we're talking about marketing. This is a marketing podcast. That was and my plan, Chip. See, there, here we are. But, you know, there needs to be a plan for attracting new diners. There needs to be a plan, a strategy in place for retaining diners. There needs to be a plan in place for turning, you know, return guests into regulars. And, you know, I, I feel like I've, I've said this over and over again, but like, we are the rare exception in business where our transactions last about two hours. Two hours. Most of the transactions are about 30 seconds. 30 seconds. You decide to buy it, you go, you click, you buy it. Yeah, we have a lot of opportunity to mess it up. We have a lot of opportunity also, though, to improve it, to turn it into something more than just a great one-time visit. Yeah, to really to, connect. To build a, a relationship, to, to engage. You know, So much of it is said, you know, and, and I kind of got started in the, all this marketing by doing social media, and you know, social media is about engagement, and yet it still can't replace actual engagement, actually like touching a table, being there with a guest, improving their experience, understanding who they are. You know, All the notes we make on a guest, what are you doing with those notes? You gotta know who they are, who their kids are, when their birthday is, their anniversary, where they work, what they do, where they live. All of that just helps you better serve them. We take all that information for what? To, to, to get better at it, to, to know them better, to be able to serve them better. I mean, people don't go out to eat. No. That's not why they're out. That's a function of it. You can eat for three bucks. They're going out to be entertained. Restaurants come out of the entertainment budget. They're going out to escape. They're going out to sure. be entertained. They're going out to socialize. They're going out to forget what's going on in their lives. Yep. They're not going out for food. They're out to learn. They're out to, you know, have their, you know, to, to broaden their experiences. It's so, so important. This is not coming out of their food budget. Food budget is groceries. This is coming out of their entertainment budget. And I think we have to engage and entertain and, you know, leave them different than when they sat down as minor as that might be just however that is you know we don't have to change their change their life but you got to leave them differently than when they sat down you know you were talking about marketing and one thing i wish that would i i can say that i've never been in a pr meeting a marketing meeting where anyone ever said let's talk about grassroots marketing because that's actually 101 that's actually yeah. where it should start and what is grassroots marketing in a restaurant? It's each customer interaction. Yep. It's word of mouth. And that may be basic, but I can tell you that water service and word of mouth, you know, those basics of restaurants is where most restaurants fail. They try to run before they can walk. They don't do the basics well, and they fail. About a year ago, I did an episode and I did this like table touch challenge. So at the end of each episode, I do like an assignment usually where I say, you know, we were learning about this and I challenge you to do this at the end of it, right? To put the concepts into practice right away. And I did this table touch challenge. And I said, I challenge you on a Saturday night to touch every single table in the dining room and to go back and write in a little notebook, table 32, Mr. Johnson, you know, and write something that you learned about that guest. 
Maybe you learned five things about that guest in that interaction, but I challenge you to get to know every single guest. And when you start saying like, his wife is Joanne, his daughter's Marie, she's going away to Harvard next year. Like when you start connecting that it's not just a cover, it's not just a customer, it's not just, it's not just you know, revenue, it's an actual person here for a purpose, it changes the way, it changes the, the way you do it. And to your point, exactly, that's what marketing is. It's figuring out what your product and who wants your product. That's marketing. So by learning, the people in your dining room are the people that have decided they want your product. That tells you everything you need to know about your market. And if you can get to know them, you can find more people like them and, and serve yeah, people better. They, they're friends. They are all friends. They're family. And this is it, you know, the other thing, right? Like 90% of the marketing uh, is done behind our backs. You know, we can't, you know, we can't control that. That's, you know, that's why when you get restaurants that do things really, really well, right? Like the Black Tap milkshakes, right? Like Black Tap didn't start posting photos of their milkshakes on Instagram. Other people started doing it and then they just started doing it too. Cause it was like, this thing's so incredible. You gotta see this. I gotta tell everybody I know about this. You gotta take a picture of it cause they're not gonna believe it unless they see it. It's the same thing with, you know, some of the things that, you know, per se does or French laundry or, you know, as, as, as high end as you want to go and as, and as low end, you know, as easy. It's just, again, you know, giving people a foothold, you know, they're, they're all going to tell their friends something. What are they going to tell them? Hopefully something positive. That is always the hope and, uh, not always, not always the result. Um, listen, we've been at this for a very, very long time. I really appreciate your time. I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Last words of wisdom for uh, anybody looking to open their restaurant or post-pandemic, things are back to normal. What should people be doing to ensure that this doesn't happen again, that they're on solid footing, that, I don't know, coming out of this, what have people learned? What should people take away? And um, what's your advice? You know, coming out of the, the pandemic, and we had touched on this before, I think the people who are opening a restaurant right now are in a real luxury position because they've not opened it before this pandemic. <laughs> um, so you could actually build a business model that's multi-tiered. You can look at multiple revenue streams. You can look at, you know, contingencies of what if this came back? You know, how could we style this to be a little bit more either a recession proof or pandemic proof? I mean, that's a luxury. It's a luxury that restaurants didn't have before this. But here's the thing. How many times do we get a blizzard, right? We get it once every three years. Unfortunately, not enough. I'm from <laughs> Buffalo, so I actually have been craving a good blizzard. So we're in New York City, and every time we get a blizzard, it happens like once every three or four years, uh, and it just shuts the city down. But you know ahead of time when it's coming. You got to learn something from this pandemic and say, well, Tuesday and Wednesday are going to be totally dead because the, the blizzard is coming. But we're going to pivot and do the thing that we did during the pandemic and do a whole bunch of to-go meals or at-home meal kits or whatever. And so you are able to tell all of your patrons rather well, than calling I mean, them I agree and telling with you, them. But I, what I'm getting at is that I think that the new restaurants will be doing all of this stuff all the time. I, I agree. It's not just a pivot temporarily. It's a, you know, and we had a taste of it, you know, Jeffrey's Grocery, and there's a bunch of places yeah. that have had started off. And that was a little bit more on that cute old Brooklyn thing. Yeah. Um, so I think it was a little bit more disguised. It wasn't necessarily looked at as like multiple revenue streams. And, and frankly, I don't think they those type of concepts really knocked it out of the park in terms of, turning great revenue from some of their products, yep. you know, I, you know, 
my uh, my the last chef that I was working with, Garrison, was from Il Buca Alimentari, and right. they had a very beautiful, you know, for the people who know that restaurant on Great Jones Street, um, you know, Il Buca Alimentari has an amazing product section, and they make all of them in house, and you know that's like two percent of their revenue. Yeah. So, and you look at what is there, and it's beautiful, um, and the products are great. It's not a large revenue stream. So, I but I do think that you know, restaurants are going to be pushing and should be opening with other revenue streams in mind, but also, again, looking at opening budget and saying, what can we do to raise revenue that right. is also not going to add to construction budgets? That's not going to, yeah. you know, that frugality is really important. You know, the restaurant that I'm working for now, you know, we have other revenue streams, but none of them are food. Yeah. You know, we have a floral shop and now we've bought a, a van, a 1962 Volkswagen bus, and we've been selling at the Chelsea flea market and, you know, having kind of diverse offerings, you know, we have a beauty line coming. And so yeah. what does that have to do with dining? Nothing, frankly, nothing, but you're looking at other revenue streams because Strictly being an in-house restaurant with in-house patrons is a very risky proposition. It's like irresponsible, I yeah. think, moving forward. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, it's like driving with a blindfold on. <laughs> and I agree. This is what I've been talking about, and that's what you know. I'm saying like I think the restaurants moving forward are going to have to do it. Uh, but at the very least, even if you don't want to do it, you have learned something from this that you can apply. And that was my my Blizzard example. It's just like there are going to be opportunities that you can apply the ideas here. Okay, so then what else? What other, so what's the advice you'd give people, you know, moving forward? Do your homework, you know, I'll, I'll, I'm just gonna kind of wrap up some of the things that I had yeah. mentioned. Um, do your homework. If you don't know anything about the restaurant business, learn it, you know, spend a year. You know, I've known, this one guy in particular that I was really impressed with. Um, again, I'm not gonna name name, uh, but he came from an amazing business school. He came from Wharton and he had no experience in the restaurant industry. And he spent two years working and he worked his way up and did various hourly positions and ended up opening several successful and very good restaurants. Um, and I was impressed at that, uh, that, that amount of discipline because it was money well spent. It was time well spent. Uh, I don't think he would have been successful without that as smart as he was. Um, so do your homework, understand, and if you don't find out how to do it and really wrap yourself with people who are on your team, they may not be the best one out there. You know, you don't need the best. I hate to say that, but you need people who are going to work well with you. That's way more important. Yeah. Um, and then surround yourself with people that you would want to, you know, I kind of use the analogy like, would I, inv would I want this person to come home and have dinner with me and my family? If you don't want that person in your own kitchen, why would you want them taking care of your customers? You know, you should be surrounded by people that you believe are good and that have ethics and morals. And hopefully you have ethics and morals. Like, we <laughs> should start with that probably. But, um, you know, I think surrounding yourself with good people who have good intentions, you know, all the other stuff is, is just water. You know, it's water under the bridge. You can always figure that stuff out. Um, hire intelligent, hire capable, hire, hire someone who's trainable. 
Um, forget the resumes. Look for longevity, though. That's important. Right. Um, negotiate your rent. If you have to, I think you're better off in a lesser known neighborhood or lesser known street than, you know, a high volume place that is going to charge you an insane rent. Um, plug your, your rent number into your your business plan because of course you did one and <laughs> of course you did plug it in you have a budget and see what that looks like you know if you need to be 100 percent full all the time as one of my clients did he did not make it by the way um and you will not you, you no one's 100 percent full all the time yeah um don't don't waste your money on frivolous stuff you know window dressings window dressing um don't build your restaurant to survive hurricane katrina um, you're going to remodel in five to 10 years anyway. So it does not need to live forever. Um, I, one of my mentors said, we do smoke and mirrors here. And he yeah. literally did mirrors. He didn't have smoke, but he had draperies. <laughs> um, but it was a very cheap build out and the restaurant did 5 million a year. It yeah. was a recipe for, for making money. And out of this, there's going to be so many second-gen spaces that are just going to be ripe for just a little bit of cosmetic updating. And then one other thing is rent your ice machine. You know, there's some key equipment you can rent. You don't want to have to fix that. So rent your ice machine, rent your dishwasher. The rest of it you should be buying used and taking what's existing in the space. Yeah, awesome. Uh, last few questions. What's the, uh, what's the worst part of the restaurant industry? Everything. <laughs> I'm just kidding. You know, when I was younger, I would have said like, you know, the hours or, you know, I never had an issue with the pay. I did this because I loved it. Um, I knew what I was signing up for. I mean, you don't, I, I've, you know, restaurant people often joke, like you don't do it for the glory. You know, this is not, there is no there glory. Is no glory. Um, <laughs> and I certainly didn't do it for the glory. I just loved food and wine and the camaraderie and the community and all of that. I think, and, and I still feel that. Um, I think the, uh, it's funny that I'm struggling to find like what's the worst part. It's not the the guests. The guests are only as good as as you make them. Yep. Um, you can either cultivate great guests or cultivate psychotic guests, um, and that's up to you. Uh, so it's not the guests. the The worst part I think is that if you do a poor job hiring, it, it you can be pervasive negativity. You could be surrounded by negativity. Um, it's a tough industry. It's a grueling industry. Um, the last thing you need to do is to just bathe in negativity. You know, I can't think of anything that would be less um, enjoyable. So maybe that. I think that if you will, if you, the industry can skew towards a negative, and I, I don't like that. Yeah. Uh, culture. I mean, it goes back to, you know, that, that negative culture. Okay. Then the flip side of that, what's the best part? Um, I've always had a particular fondness for the capability of the people in my industry. You know, I'll, I'll tell a, a story and we could probably, you know, well, I think this will be illustrative and I think we can leave it at that. But I was running a restaurant and we had an upstairs neighbor, you know, this is New York City. So upstairs neighbor had left his tub running for some undeterminate <laughs> amount of time, um, flooded the dining room also flooded the office below in the basement with four inches of water. Um, the water went through our entire electronics rack 
took down our communications, our POS system, took down everything that ran with a brain. Um, discovered this at 9 a.m. Uh, before a very, very busy Saturday brunch and called the IT guy. He actually was amazing. He got in there, he started working. Um, we started to clean up the restaurant. We opened at 11.30 on time with the restaurant fully intact. Half the system's running, but everyone was ready to go in place. And the IT guy, who's, you know, he's IT, he's not from the restaurant business. He looked at me and he said, this is what I love about your restaurant people. He's like, any other business would have said, we're closed for the day. He's like, in an hour and a half, you guys are open and doing business. And to be able to do that with people and you just look at them and say, let's, let's do it, let's go. And the, the spring to action, that, that capability, that jump to, you know, to get it done, is there's no other industry that really offers that. Well, the only other industry I can think of is where I came from, which is theater, yeah. which is entertainment. The show must go on, uh, which goes back to what you were saying. It's all smoke and mirrors. It's all just entertainment. This, you know, we've now talked about the same thing. It all comes full circle. It's, a, it's the perfect way to end it. And, you know, I would say that, you know, I'm seeing someone right now. I'm dating this wonderful woman who is from the enter entertainment industry. And the stories that I've heard, and I actually was having a conversation with a friend recently about this, that those are the two industries that really mirror each other. Yeah. And, you know, have that kind of unique combination of like psychotic hours, low glory, and immediate needs for like getting things done right now. Now is too late. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, it's a crazy industry we're in. This is a crazy time we're in. Uh, Chris, I appreciate you taking the time to sit down and talk. I had fun, Chip. I think this was a good time. Any uh, any parting words of wisdom before I let you go? Yeah. Um, if if you're thinking about doing a restaurant, don't do it. <laughs> but if you really want to, you should do it because it is the most enjoyable, the most rewarding, um, and the best community you could be a part of. It's as good a place as any to leave it. Thank you so much for uh, for being here. Once again, I want to thank Chris for joining us for this episode. Uh, I hope you guys got a lot out of it. I know this interview ran a bit longer uh, than some of the other interviews, but uh, I think the information was really good, and I just didn't I didn't want to cut it short. I wanted to, uh, to, to make sure he had room to talk about the things he wanted to talk about. Uh, obviously, there are a lot of takeaways here. I think uh, the biggest one for me is to be organized, is to get your head on straight, and, and, to, and to learn uh, about the industry as much as you can if you're going to be opening a restaurant, to, to figure Figure out what it is you don't know. You got to know what it is you don't know. Uh, again, I think uh, Chris uh, offered a lot of value for all of us. And, and again, I, I hope you guys got a lot out of it. Uh, I'll leave you with one final request. If you've got a few minutes, if you want to go leave us a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts, it just helps boost us in the rankings. A bunch of you guys have done that. So thank you. Please keep doing that. Uh, as always, stay safe, stay creative, and I will see you next time. <laughs> 